Well, good morning to you. Thanks for being with us today. And uh, you can see that Vacation Bible School has thrown up all over our stage. Uh, I'm excited about Vacation Bible School. It's one of my favorite times of the year, and we begin that tomorrow. Many, many months have gone in the preparation and planning of this event. I know many of you are participating in it. Uh, whether you're, you've got kids or grandkids that are going to be a part of it or whether you're teaching or not, let me encourage you to be praying for our Vacation Bible School and its work and its ministry. Last year, uh, after a year off from, during the middle of COVID, last year we actually had Vacation Bible School, but it was on a more limited uh, basis. We had to restrict uh, uh, the attendance. This year it's a little bit far more wide open. Uh, many of our classes have been uh, filled up for some time. Praise the Lord, we've got plenty of leaders. and uh, But we need to be praying. There are many, many children who represent... Uh, dozens of families who do not know Jesus, who throughout this, the next few days will hear the gospel over and over and over again. And so I encourage you to be praying for what is going to take place on this campus, in this room, as we share the gospel and, and pour the word of God into kids. Uh, who knows, not only may a kid's life be changed eternally, but their families as well. Amen? Amen. At the end of our service, we're going to have an opportunity to pray and to lift up our Vacation Bible School ministry to the Lord. Well, let me invite you, if you will, to open up your Bibles. We're in the book of Hebrews today. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 19 in a moment. I don't know if you've ever had a, a moment in your life, maybe several moments in your lives, where you've walked into a situation or entered into a space that you're not supposed to be there, Right? I mean, others may be allowed to be there, but you're not supposed to be there, and you know it. You ever, you ever had an experience like that? A few years ago, I attended the, the SEC basketball tournament for the very first time. A friend of mine called me up from Kentucky and said, hey, I've got some tickets. Do you want to go? I was like, absolutely. And so we went to the SEC tournament. It was in Atlanta that year in the old Georgia Dome, big football stadium. They put a basketball court uh, down on the, on the field. We had decent tickets, decent seats. We were on the lower arena. However, we were far away from the, the court because of the way the stadium was laid out. And uh, so as big as the place was, it wasn't, you know, there were only a handful of seats, a few rows away from the, the basketball court that were really premium type seating. And so we sort of began a little bit of a game. If you've ever been to the SEC tournament, you may be aware of this, but all of the teams show up. They all have tickets, the fans come, and, uh, and there's lots of games that are going on. And when your team is playing, uh, you know, you sit and you watch, but then after your team has, has finished the game, maybe even lost, you leave, and the fans from the other teams then get to sort of creep down closer to the court, away from their tickets, and get better seats. And so my friend and I, we sort of made a, a game of getting closer. And so we would the, the, the first game would be over, and we would get up from our seats, and we saw some seats available, and we would walk and, and find our place out uh, uh, a little bit closer, a few rows down. And then we would notice a few rows farther, there were some even closer seats. And we'd say, come on, let's go down, and we'd get closer. And we made it, I tell you, several times we made it right to the edge of what, are, what we would call premium seating. There were about eight to ten rows where people had paid extra money, and uh, you really weren't allowed to go down in there if you didn't have a ticket. And, uh, you know, they had uh, ushers that were set up at, at the entrances most of the time, and, and so it was very difficult to get down there unless you actually had a ticket. Well, we finally made it to right to the edge of the premium seats, and my friend sees some seats a little bit further down into those premium seating areas. 
he said, look, man, I think we can get down there. I said, no, man, there's, there's an usher over there. We, we can't do that. He says, no, we can do it. Come on. And he took off. And so I quickly followed him, and sure enough, when the usher had turned his head, we were able to go right into this spot, right? And let me tell you, I want you to see the seats that, that we ended up with. These are third-row seats. This is on TV, right? We got called out on national television. And I will tell you, as awesome as it was, it was a lot of fun. We actually won this particular game. Uh, as much fun as it was, I spent most of the game looking over my shoulder, right? <laughs> I was looking to see if, the, if, you know, maybe the ticket holders who actually had the tickets were coming to take their seats, or maybe, maybe the, the yellow-shirted uh, usher was going to come and, and force us back out. And so as much as I enjoyed the game, I knew that I didn't belong there, right? Now, there was an interesting thing that happened while we were sitting in those seats before this particular game. Uh, there was uh, some UT fans, University of Tennessee fans, that were sitting next to us. And we sort of befriended them. We started talking to them. They knew we were Kentucky fans. They were from the Knoxville area. And we chatted quite a bit about basketball and, and life and things. And this particular Tennessee fan, he, wasn't, he said, normally I come to the games and I stay through the entire tournament. Win or lose, I go to the very end and I watch it all. But he says, I'm so frustrated with my basketball team this year. Uh, if Tennessee loses early, he said, we're leaving. He said, I tell you what, if that happens... We're going to give you, you, you two fellows, we're going to give you our tickets. And they'll be good all the way to the championship game. And we're like, okay, dear Lord. <laughs> right? And the Lord answers prayer sometimes, right? Because in the next round, Tennessee loses. And uh, he got up and he, he turned to us and he held, held out his tickets. And he said, here you go, boys. And he said, oh, by the way. He said, these tickets also come with, with uh, access to the hospitality room, right? So this was Saturday. Our, our team began to play. We won. And the very next day, instead of starting at the very top in our original seats like we did earlier in the, in the, in the tournament and begin to make our way closer and closer to the game, we walked in like we owned the place, right? We walked down the aisle. You know, I almost wanted to wave my tickets and let everybody know that I'm in premium seating. And we walked all the way. And we, instead of hopping over the rail and, and to avoid the gaze of the usher, we walked up and we handed our tickets to the usher. And you're like, no, go ahead. Take a close look at those, right? <laughs> and then we made our way to the seats and we, we enjoyed the game until Florida beat us in that particular game. But that's another story. But halfway through the game, you know, at halftime, we were able to get up and we went into the hospitality room and we had this incredible buffet and we were rubbing elbows with some SEC famous people. And it was just a, the grandest of time. Then we went back out to, the, to our seats and we boldly walked into that seat. And, and, and listen, we didn't pay for those tickets, right? We, we, we really didn't own them. They were given to us, but we didn't earn those tickets. But we walked into that section with a, with a bravado, with a confidence, uh, with a boldness that we really didn't deserve. And yet we knew that we belonged there because we indeed had the tickets, right? You know, that's really what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, when it comes to salvation, you and I, we have not earned salvation, right? You know that. You do not deserve the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. Everything about your faith was given to you, not because of you. And yet, 
we have this salvation. Amen? And because of this salvation, there is a confidence, or at least there should be a confidence within you and me, a boldness, knowing that though we don't belong in this place, we don't belong in the same space as God, we have confidence in knowing what Jesus did for us upon the cross. And knowing that He is our great representative, He is the great high priest, we can come into His presence. And we can know Him and be with Him and experience Him. Isn't that a good thing to know? You know, that ought to compel us in some ways. It ought to encourage our behavior. And In fact, our passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today talks about how we can leverage this confidence that we have in our faith in Jesus Christ. A confidence that is given to us, not because we've done anything, but because Jesus has done everything. And we ought to leverage that to live our lives of faith for Him. We ought to be bold. We ought to be confident for Him. There ought to be an audaciousness to us when it comes to our faith in Christ, which I believe is what we're called to do here in our text. So why don't you stand with me? We're going to begin to read in verse 19 down to verse 25 these important words. Listen to this. Verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Lord, I believe you've given us license have an audacious faith as long as we recognize that our faith is just that our trust in you and what you have done for us that it's not about us at all there's nothing about who we are or what we have done or what we have accomplished that has enabled us to have this faith in you that has enabled us to recognize you as lord as god and to have you as our Savior. It is all you and has always been you. And yet, Lord, because you have done for us what we could not do, you have paid the penalty of our sin. Your wrath, the wrath that, that burns against our sin, has been appeased. And therefore, Lord, we don't have to fear coming into your presence because we know that you are for us, that you represent us, and that you died for us, and that we do not enter into your presence with our own righteousness but your righteousness imputed into us thank you lord that we have this confidence this boldness about our faith now lord let it reflect in our behavior before you and before this world i pray in jesus name we pray it amen and amen god bless you go ahead and have a seat you may notice if you're here much you know that i typically preach through sermon series it's been actually a few weeks 
since we were last in any kind of series. Normally, I, I preach through a series of messages, often through a book of the Bible or through a topic uh, rooted in Scripture, as we did back at Holy Week. However, our schedule recently has sort of blown up my preaching calendar. It's been challenging to start a new series. I promise you we're going to do so in July, so keep that in mind. We're, we're going to be uh, preaching on individual subjects and topics over the course of the next few weeks. But what it's allowing me to do, however, is to land on some of my favorite Bible passages, and Hebrews chapter 10 is one of them. And I think what draws me to this particular passage more than anything else is there's, there, there's sort of an irony about it when you understand who we are in light of God's holiness, our sinfulness in light of His holiness, because it is describing a confidence that we're permitted to have that would have been unthinkable for uh, Jewish believers in the earliest days of the church. In fact, look again at verse 19. I'll explain what I mean there because he says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, or in some translations, boldness, we have confidence, boldness, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. If you're not familiar with Jewish worship in the days of the temple, this, the irony may be a little lost upon you. So let me explain. He references holy places there in verse 19, which to be specific, the holy places referenced in verse 19 is actually a, a reference to the sanctuary that's in heaven. We know this because previously in the book, in chapter 8, we're, there's a description of this. In fact, verse 19 of, of Hebrews chapter 10, as it begins, therefore, is really pointing backwards into Scripture, into the book of Hebrews, and it's sort of pointing the fact that there is a summary coming. And the summary is a reflection of what you read in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Referring to Jesus and, and heaven, we're told this, that we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. So you get this picture of Jesus in heaven, that, that is sanctuary for Jesus. The holy places is the sanctuary in heaven. Now the Jews and the Jewish believers to whom this book was written to mostly would have been more familiar with the Jewish earthly temple here on earth. The temple had holy places as a part of it. The most holy place inside was the Holy of Holies and that was where the Ark of the Covenant would, would have been located and it was behind a curtain and, and once a year a high priest, the high priest, would have entered in behind that, that curtain on the Day of Atonement and only he was allowed to go in there as he was offering up an atoning sacrifice on behalf of all of Israel. For anyone else to go in that place at any other time would have evoked the, the judgment of God upon them, even the high priest, though he had been given permission to go into that place only one time of year, when he would go on that singular day, even he would go in timidly, not knowing if he would survive it. There's a tradition that says that a rope was tied to the foot of the high priest. That way, if his sins weren't atoned for and he walked in there and, and the, the holiness of God, the glory of God struck him dead, no one would have to go in to retrieve the body. They would just pull him out by the rope, right? How would you like to go into a place where you were told you're going to experience the presence of God, uh, but... If you happen to go in there and there's something wrong between you and God and your relationship with Him, if your sins haven't been atoned for, you might not walk back out. How would you like to go into that, that place? 
How would you like to know that maybe it's a 50-50 chance you survive it or not? Well, no sane person would enter into holy places with confidence. And yet, that is what the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to do here. To have the boldness to stroll right into God's holy presence and to see this challenge to do so is so unexpected. Whether it be the high places of heaven or the holy of holies, you just don't stroll into places that you don't belong. Because that's just an audacious thing to, to do. To enter into God's presence, the holy presence of God, and to do so confidently. And yet we're told right here in this passage we get to do that. That we can do it and we can do it. Uh, We get to do it. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done to pay the penalty of your sin and mine. Because of the blood of Jesus shed for you and for me. His blood was shed upon the cross. And because His blood was shed to pay the penalty of our sin... All true Christians have had their sins forgiven and we have been made holy by His blood. That means that we have access to the holy presence of God. An access that was forbidden to us before Jesus. In fact, I want you to take note of verse 20. As he says that we have this confidence that we can enter the holy places by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. If you know much about crucifixion history you know that the mention of the curtain it ought to ring a bell for you because when Jesus died in the moment that he gave up his life this curtain that is being referenced here also referred to as the veil was a specific curtain that existed in the temple and it separated an area known as the holy place from the holy of holies and it was a a, a tall curtain 60 feet high 30 feet wide four inches thick And it sort of served as a divider separating the most holy place on earth, a place that was set aside to represent God's presence, and it separated the rest of the planet and all of humanity from the Holy of Holies. It basically serves as a shield between sinful man and a holy God. And so this reference of the curtain and the fact that it was ripped from the top to the bottom when Jesus died for us That curtain reminded us of how separated we were from God because of our sin. But something happened to that curtain when Jesus died. It was rent in two, opening up the way, showing us that we now have access to holy God. So what what caused that to happen? The sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus died. He offered his flesh. His perfect body was given up as a sacrifice. Last week we talked about animal sacrifice. And we know that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other sacrifices have been made throughout human history. But none of them, not a single one of them, were complete enough to bring about true forgiveness and and final forgiveness. Only Jesus' sacrifice makes us holy. Only Jesus' sacrifice allows us to have access to the Holy of Holies, to the holy places, to God Himself. And only Jesus can likewise be our mediator, the mediator between us and God. Why? Because He is God. Look at verse 21 again. As He he mentions the sacrifice of of Jesus, He then switches in verse 21 to how Jesus is our, our representative. He says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, I've already referenced the high priest. There was only one high priest in the days of Jewish worship. 
and uh, he was the represent. He would represent, or the rep- be the representative of the Jewish people. And again, on that one day of year, the 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 day of atonement, he would enter into the holy of holies, representing the rest of the Jewish people to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. Again, he would do it every year. But you know, he would have to go back year after year after year. And he himself had to have sins that needed to be atoned for. However, Jesus has become the perfect high priest, the great priest. He isn't just before God one day of the year. He continually intercedes for us. He doesn't keep going and offering sacrifices on our behalf. He offered a one-time sacrifice that never had to be repeated. He didn't have to atone for his own sin. Why? Because he is God. That means he is perfect without sin. That is why he is the great priest. And so if this is true, if his blood covers us, if Jesus has opened up the way for us, if if he is now our mediator between us and God, of course we can have confidence in him. Amen? We can have an audacious faith. Friend, we shouldn't just rest in that, in that confidence, that boldness. It ought to compel us to action. It ought to evoke a response from us. In fact, from this text and what you see following, We're given three actions, three encouragement, three responses to the audacious faith that we can have in Jesus Christ. And and each of them, as you're going to note, begin with a simple two-word phrase, let us. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. And so I want to take these three challenges and, and present them to you, restate them for you as actions that you and I need to be embracing if we're going to embrace with confidence this faith that we have in Jesus. And here's the first action that I believe we're called to do. I'll I'll state it like this. Because of the confidence we have in our salvation, we should first draw near to God in faith. We, We have access to God. Why wouldn't we take advantage of that access by drawing near to Him? So in light of what Jesus has done, here's what we should do. Verse 22, He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So drawing near, that that, that speaks of of approachment, of of approaching God, of of being in His presence. Which, by the way, is the exact opposite of what ultimately happened with Adam and Eve, the first of us, the first human beings. Remember, they were created by God to know Him, to be known by Him, to to live their lives as, as lives of worship before him and they were able to have access to God as they God placed them in a, in a, in a paradise gave them everything that they need they had, uh, they had one another they had sustenance but they also had access to God and were able to interact with him and have fellowship with him and of course as as we know in the scriptures they sinned against God and one of the first things that they did when, when God begins to walk through the garden in the cool of the garden, what, instead of coming and being in their presence, they went off and they hid themselves because of their shame. Because of their shame, they knew they didn't deserve to be in God's presence, nor did they want to be in God's presence. And then God forced them out of His presence in a formal sense. You remember the details of what happened there? When, when God said, Behold, the man, this woman, have become like us in knowing good and evil. And so th- to prevent them from eating of the tree of life, having sinned against God and taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in order to prevent them from having access to the tree of life, he forced them, drove them out of the garden. And he placed at the entrance of the garden a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword turning in every direction to keep them separated from God forever. After that, 
humans were incapable of drawing near to God on their own. They were affected by it, and we are afflicted in the same way. Of course, they could have have fellowship with God in in limited ways in, in their worship, There are plenty of instructions in the Old Testament about how they worship God in in light of their sin. But it wasn't the same as what what happened for Adam and Eve in the garden before the sin of man. The tabernacle and the temple was set up as a demonstration that God was among them. But they were not allowed as a people to go into the Holy of Holy. And because of their sin, they couldn't draw near to God. Even when they did, someone or something had to die. And yet here we see the writer of Hebrews saying, wait a minute, in spite of all of this history, something has changed. And because of Jesus and His work upon the cross, and because He is our mediator, we can now draw near and do so with confidence. Remember, the the original recipients of this book are are Hebrews, they're, they're Jews. And the idea of drawing near to God would have been foreign to them. They would have been afraid to have done so. And yet, here they are, being told to draw near with boldness, with confidence, with a complete kind of confidence, which was something new. It would have been very hard for them to accept. Remember, their perspective on approaching God with, with assurance wouldn't have been the same as maybe we have today in those moments. They had to learn to understand it and appreciate it. They knew the story of Adam and Eve and how they hid. They, they knew how, God, uh, how Moses had to cover his face when he entered b- before God's presence because Moses could not stand to be before him in his sin. They remember how Uzzah reached out and grabbed a hold of the Ark of the Covenant uh, that represented God's presence on earth and grabbed a hold of it to, to keep it from hitting the ground. But the moment that he did, uh, God struck Uzzah the, to, to death. And these stories and many others told them that God doesn't play when it comes to our sin and His holiness. And yet, here again, they are being told to draw near with full assurance, with certainty and confidence. How can this be? How can we enter into God's presence and to do so with confidence and to draw near to God? How can we do it with, 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 with boldness? Well, look at verse 22 a little closer because he says, let us draw near with a true heart. This speaks of a, of a purity of one's heart, of a sincerity of heart. Remember, by nature, our hearts are sinful. That, 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 that happened as a result of the fall. It's all of us. There's none of us innocent. So by nature, we do not have true hearts. Jesus described our hearts once by saying that out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and, and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. That's our hearts in a natural state. But we're being told here in verse 22 to draw near to God with true hearts. So how do we do that? Well, the end of verse 22 explains it. We do so with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And there's a lot of theological and biblical debate around all of this. And we don't have time to, to walk into the weeds of all of this, but... Let me just summarize it very quickly by saying that our hearts being sprinkled clean is is an indication of an inward change. It's pointing to the change in our hearts that that has taken place, not because we've caused it, but someone else has caused it. Jesus, of course. That our bodies would be washed with pure water is possibly a reference to baptism, which would be our obedient response, outward response to inward heart change. But the truth that, that we are to grab from here is that True, a true heart 
comes not from an outward application, but an inward work of God in our lives, an inward change that is made possible only by the blood of Jesus. And because of the blood of Jesus, we can be saved from our sin, we can be sprinkled clean from our sin, and which allows us then to draw near to God. Now that's the first action. If we're going to have a confident, bold faith, we, we, we ought to, in response to that, draw near to the presence of God and, and to make that a priority of our lives. Here's a second truth, a second action that we're called to do because of the confidence that we have in our salvation. We should also hold fast to the faith. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who is promised is faithful. And what the author of Hebrews here is encouraging us here, he's speaking of maintaining the faith. That we embrace the faith, but that we continue in the faith, not, not wavering from it. It's the same spirit as Jude uh, when he wrote these words, that we would be contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, if Jesus died for you, if, if he opened the way of salvation to God through his flesh, and if you believe this to be true, then what we ought to do is that not only embrace it in the moment, but we hold on to it and we keep on believing we hold fast, we, we, we keep on believing it, th this confession of our hope. And notice that we're told to do so without wavering. It's giving us a picture of a timeline that in this moment we're not wavering, but if we're not careful we begin to waver and, and steer clear of this confession by which we have been saved. And so we're told to not waver and told this because it is possible that we do waver. Therefore we should take care to hold fast to what we believe so that we would not waver. And friends, there is a phenomenon that's going on in the Western culture, particularly here in the United States, where a lot of Christians are beginning to waver today. They've given a name to it. It's called Christian deconstruction. And what it amounts to is Christian deconstruction is challenging the truth of God. It challenges how much we can trust God's Word as the true, inerrant Word of God. It even challenges the biblical worldview. And as a result of this, thousands are leaving their Christian faith. Even some well-known Christians, maybe you've heard of some of these. Former pastors like Rob Bell, and famous author, creative speaker, Joshua Harris, who wrote the book, I've Kissed Dating Goodbye, who eventually became a pastor of, a, of an evangelical church, has left the faith completely. Evangelical Bart Ehrman and uh, even Bart Campolo, who's the son of Tony Campolo, who's a famous Christian speaker and writer. And what has happened for a lot of these, these individuals, they've embraced the idea that truth is relative and my truth is more important than the truth. And it emphasizes feelings and experiences over universal truth. And so what is happening for, for many of these is that they've not held fast their confession. The truth to them wasn't biblical truth. Their truth were their feelings. Their truth was what the culture was telling them that they needed to embrace in order to stay true to the culture. But yet we are told here that we have a specific confession that we proclaim. It's not my truth or your truth. It is God's truth. It is eternal truth. It is a confession of hope that Jesus is Lord and that He has made salvation possible. And because of this, we should not waver from it. The Apostle Paul summarized it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For I delivered to you as a first of importance what I also received 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is our confession. This is the hope by which we, that we proclaim, that is, Jesus died for our sins, that He was buried and that He came back to life. But I don't want to underemphasize the fact that Paul was pointing back to the Scriptures when he was grabbing a hold of this gospel truth. He says that the gospel is in accordance to the Scriptures. We don't get to say, you know, I'm just going to take Jesus the good, and the good parts that make me feel good about myself and, and the things that I already believe in. I trust that He saves me, but I'm tossing out those things that I disagree with. I toss out uh, the perspective that the church is the only place uh, that, that, that God has gathered a people. I'm going to toss out the, the biblical sexual ethic. I'm going to toss out the Bible's teachings on gender. No, that's not how it works. You take Jesus and you take his scripture, you don't get to pick and choose what, what you believe. Of course, holding fast to the confession of hope, indeed it means embracing the gospel. But it also requires embracing all of God's word, not just the parts that support our pet beliefs. And we do so, why? Because of the one who gave it to us the one who gave us the promise of salvation, the same verse tells us that the one who has given it to us is faithful. He is faithful, and he will be true to his word. There's one final instruction, one, one final response I believe we're called to do because of our confidence in the, in the salvation that we have in Jesus. Yes, we draw near to God in faith. Yes, we hold fast to the faith. Here's the third and final point. And that is to stir up the faithful. And by stir up, by the way, I mean it in a good way. Look at verse 24, 25. The author writes, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I, I just love how it's put here that we consider how to stir one another up. The idea of considering is we put great thought and contemplation upon the relationships that we have in the faith. We ought to consider how we stir one another up. That, that word stir up means to stimulate, to, to provoke, to arouse. Now admittedly, throughout the history of churches, there's been an awful lot of stirring up that happens. We know that. And that's not always of the godly kind. It's the result of things not going someone's particular way, the way that they like it. It's making them uncomfortable, and it's, it's divisive, and it's evil. And it often happens in, in hallways and parking lots and on, by text and email and phone calls. But that's not the kind of stirring up that the author is pointing out here, what he means here. He says very specifically, we are to stir one another up to something good, to love and good works. In other words, when we come to faith in Christ, we're not coming to faith in Christ on our own. It is an individual relationship that we have, but it opens us up to a community of fellowship, a community uh, koinonia, a community faith. And we're to live that faith out in community. In fact, it's in the context of community that we are to stimulate and provoke and to arouse one another to live out the faith. And that idea of one another, it's a, you've heard me mention this before, it's repeated throughout the New Testament in particular, 
but throughout Scripture of how we should serve one another and accept one another and forgive one another and greet one another and bear with one another and be devoted to one another and honor one another and teach one another and submit to one another and, and encourage one another. And so this idea of being together is to, to, to be the one another's with one another, right? To help one another live out our faith in this common theme throughout Scripture. And the idea behind it, the, the assumption behind it, is that to do all of these things together is we've got to get together, right? Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir right now, though we don't have a choir today. And you know that, that, that uh, idea, that idiom of preaching to the choir where it comes from? Some of the most faithful attenders in the life of the church are the choir. They come to rehearsals, they come to worship every Sunday, and so they're the most faithful. And when you talk about preaching to the choir, you're talking to the people who are already there, already committed. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir. If you're here today, it is likely you're one of those who've taken these verses, verses 24 and 25, very seriously. But understand, this call to get together is expected not just of the faithful, but those who need to become faithful. As he says it in verse 25, look at there. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. There are many who neglect this important part of walking with Christ. But why do you think this was included in the, in the scriptures? Because even way back then, in the earliest days of the church, some people made it a habit not to gather. They neglected to gather with other Christians. This word habit, it is their ethos, their normal, their ethic. Many years ago when I was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Corbin, Kentucky, I quickly learned to appreciate a man by the name of Bill Ferris. Bill is now with the Lord. He passed away a handful of years ago. But every September, I got a reminder, a physical reminder of faithfulness when it comes to church attendance. Bill Ferris would walk up to me the 1st of September when we would reset our church year and, uh, and he would print out a certificate, I kid you not, he would print out, print out a certificate that was recognizing his attendance record. And for 23 straight years, he did not miss one Sunday in going to Sunday school. Not one time, for 23 years. Isn't that something? When's the last time you failed to miss church? It is highly unlikely anyone here has not missed a Sunday in the last 12 months. But we don't see that kind of commitment much anymore. In fact, we're seeing a widespread turn in the other direction that's affecting church attendance in America. Listen, COVID has done a number on churches. Just saw some statistics just a day or so ago of how attendance in America from pre-COVID to, to now has, has slid significantly used to be about a third of, of Americans were in church at least one Sunday out of four in a given month, around 34%. And now after COVID, that number is now down to 26%. We're now down to just a fourth of Americans going at least once a month. And listen, we've been watching this for a long time, how worship attendance in, in American churches has been in decline. Our own church, though we're starting to finally, we believe, hit the bottom and starting to, to recover our own church has been working on a 25-year downward trend in attendance. Predates my, my, attendance, my, my tenure here, but it's not just our church. You're seeing it across the land. Tom Rainer suggests that the number one reason for the decline is that church members who do attend, attend with less frequency than they used to. People come, but they don't, just, they don't come just as often. You know, when I was a kid, you know what a regular attender was? 
just about every Sunday, at least three out of four Sundays of a given month, they were there. But today, a person considers themselves a regular attender if they show up at least just once a month. This is the new normal, by the way. I, I hate that it is, but th- just to be casual about gathering with the rest of the church, but you need to know that the new normal isn't working because we've been watching and seeing this gener- generational decline. The, the oldest among us are the builder generation, and the, the, most of them are about to graduate to Jesus. If you're here today, God bless you for your faithfulness through the years. They, they are the most faithful of our attenders. The baby boomers of the next generation, they've been faithful, but not quite as much as, as their parents. Then there are the Gen Xers, my generation, that are not so regular, but we still show up sometimes. And it's the millennial generation and, and Generation Z that are largely missing in our churches. And so it's no wonder that so many Christians... So many of those that are deconstructing in their faith are not of those older, somewhat attending generation. Many of them are not a part of the church at all. They're not actively and, and, and hopefully and positively engaging in a Christian relationship. So it's no wonder that so many of them that, that took the name of Christ at one, part, at one point are deconstructing their faith. Because their habit isn't coming to church. Their habit is to not come and meet regularly with other believers. They are purposefully and willfully avoiding Christian community and they're beginning to surround themselves with people and have been people and voices on social media and beyond that are not helping them hold fast to their confession. Listen to the author of Hebrews, for he is telling us, don't be like those who don't go to church. Don't be like them. Don't neglect this vitally important part of your faith now all that we've talked about here the big idea is that jesus did everything that was necessary for us he died to save us he continually represents us and friend that ought to give you confidence in him amen it ought to not in yourself not in us but in him and so if you have an audacious faith it's not because you're something else it's because he is something else and because he has done what no one else could do for you. And in light of that, dear friend, draw near to God in faith. Hold fast to the faith. Don't let it go. Hold fast. Meanwhile, let's get together and stir up the faithful. You know, we have a, a discipleship pathway around here. We, we call it No Grow Change. And we, we've encapsulated it in, in, in a few statements. Know God, grow together, change the world. We know God through our corporate worship gatherings. It's important that we gather together. We also know that in a larger congregation like this that we also need relationships that go well beyond just coming and sitting in a pew. That's why we have the grow together. We, we have community groups and, and discipleship groups, D groups, that get together and we're, in which iron sharpens iron. Likewise, we have the statement of change the world. We do that through our service. God has gifted us with spiritual gifts that we are to use for the building up of the church, but he's also called us to be out on mission. And when we use our gifts and we share the gospel, not just in our community, but to the ends of the earth, we can truly change the world through God's purpose and mission in our lives. And so if I could take what we've heard today and challenge you to do anything, it would be this. Friend, join with us in this, on this discipleship path. For many of you, you're already engaged in, in, our community, in our large community here in our worship services. You come regularly, you come faithfully. 
But maybe you've not taken the next step of being a part of a community group. Can I tell you why a community group is so vital for you to to living out your faith and sticking with us? COVID. What we discovered is that those who who were most likely to be with us after COVID went away from when they were with us from before was whether or not they were in a community, a smaller community. And if you were a part of a community group, it it was far more likely that you've continued with us through COVID and beyond than those who did not. And I know many of you look around and you see some folks that are no longer with us. You know they're alive. They survived COVID. They're just not coming to church anymore. For many of them, I will tell you the high likelihood is they were not in a community group where they are developing relationships, where they can be cared for and are caring for others and growing in their faith with someone else. And so I I implore you, if you're going to have an audacious faith, remember that you need to trust Jesus and what he did upon the cross for you, knowing that when he died and his blood was shed for you, he paid the penalty of your sin that gives you access to the holiness of God, to his holy presence. And it's only because of what he has done that you can have a confident faith in entering into a relationship with the God who has created you. And you do that by believing and repenting. You believe that he is God, and that he died for you, and you repent. You turn from your sin in his strength. You turn from your sin, and you turn to him. And if that is not true for you, I encourage you today, before we depart, speak with one of our pastors. You'll find one over at our cross this morning. When we close and have our last prayer, there'll be a pastor there. If you today are not sure that you have confidence in in your eternity, you do not know Jesus, today's a good day to surrender your all. And once you've done that, once you know God, you need to engage in a community of believers so that you together can spur one uh, one another on to love and good deeds while you hold fast His confession. I want to pray for you right now, and I want to lift you up, and I want to pray that God challenges you to be audacious in your faith and to demonstrate it with these actions. Lord, I thank you for the challenge of the day. Oh, Lord God, thank you that you died for us, that you died for our sin, that through the flesh we now have confidence to enter into the holy places in heaven. Lord, thank you for all that means. Thank you for continually representing us as our great priest before the throne of God. Now, Lord, let us not rest in that confidence, but compel us to draw near to you, to take advantage of the relationship and the access that we have with you. Lord, build us up in our faith as we hold on to that faith without wavering. And Lord, as we hold on to that faith without wavering, let us also actively engage in relationships with other believers so that together we spur one another on toward love and good deeds, knowing that the day is coming, that this life will not continue on and on and on, but judgment day is coming. And when that day comes, Lord, let us be found in the end faithful to you. We pray this, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.